Hello, Rebecca. Hi, John. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis based on my newsletter, News Items. It's Wednesday, July 14th. John, what do you want to talk about today? Our evil a Russian-based ransomware group that recently pulled off one of the biggest ransomware attacks ever, went offline yesterday. We'll get into that, and I want to ask you about the, quote, ultimate index that finance giant MSCI is working on. How about you? I want to ask you about some of the regulatory challenges facing big tech after France's antitrust regulator hit Alphabet with a half-billion-euro fine yesterday, And I want to talk about all the foreign money pouring into Chinese bonds and equities. All right. Before we get to the items, let's start with two science and tech headlines. First, John, Biontech CEO Yugur Shaheen says the world won't beat this pandemic without booster shots. His company partnered with Pfizer to bring mRNA vaccines to the market for the first time ever, and they're famously effective. But Shaheen said he expects a small drop in protection against severe COVID infections offered by the shots, hence the boosters, which would help shore up immunities for the winter season. Of course, any third shots would have to be approved by the FDA, and medical authorities are weighing in. After meeting with Pfizer on Monday, Anthony Fauci said people are jumping the gun regarding booster shots. John, do you think we'll see these extra shots in the U.S., and do we need to? I assume that this is a case where elite public opinion will will crush any opposition. Um, I think most people in high-income media, political circles will say, if Shaheen says so, that's it. Well, here's, okay, so here's my question. I think, because I think opposition or let's say dissent has come from a couple different quarters on this issue. One is the global development issue. It's these outbreaks in the developing world that can become, you know, that you can see massive death and destruction as well as a hotbed for variants, right? So Mm -hmm. so you have some people saying that we shouldn't hasten to deliver booster shots to the developed world when many parts of the developing world could use the first two shots. The other segment of dissent is that in parts of even the developed world, such as the U.S., you're dealing with vaccine hesitancy. And, you know, we can talk all we want about third booster shots or modifiable booster shots for the future when there are parts of large swaths of the United States where people are unwilling to get the first two, right? Right. Well, I guess we'll see. (laughs) I guess we'll see. Time will tell. Time Time will tell. tell. Yes. Next, Apple appears confident about its next generation's iPhone sales. The company asked suppliers to build as many as 90 million units, according to Bloomberg sources. That's up from about 75 million in recent years. The ongoing chip shortage isn't expected to affect this order, people told Bloomberg anonymously, because Asian suppliers plan for Apple's needs months in advance. The new slate of smartphones is expected to be just an incremental upgrade involving the processor, display, and camera. John, do you think Apple is right to expect this much extra demand for a set of refined, not revolutionary iPhones? I think that they can convince people that the move to 5G Uh requires a new phone. Okay. I mean, not requires, but it would be a good idea. I think Apple will be fairly convincing to to us to say, you know, 5G is here or it's coming to your community. Uh Uh, This phone is fully adapted to 5G. It's best if you get a new phone. And by the way, it has a great camera, you Mm. know, plus just pent up demand. People like me are going to say, okay. 
Are you surprised that Bloomberg's anonymous sources said that the chip shortage is not expected to affect this order? Was that a little down-low analyst guidance? <laughs> no, I was surprised I, to hear that. <laughs> I was stunned to hear that yeah. because I, don't, I can't imagine how it's true. Yeah, I know. Right? I know. They have a special warehouse for Apple chips, right? Yeah, that's um, it. Maybe we I, need to get our evil on the case to find out. It could be that just the market leadership position. You know, if you if you have Apple as a client, you take care of them first. You know, so yeah, the non-chip shortage that is not affecting Apple's new iPhone, which everyone will buy because of the new camera. All yeah, right, exactly. All right, <laughs> so let's move on to the news items, John. You and I have talked before about ransomware attacks, most notably the attacks on Colonial Pipeline and JBS Foods. Last week, another ransomware attack hit a Florida-based software company called Kaseya. The hackers demanded a $70 million payoff, making it potentially the biggest ransomware attack of all time. Our evil, the hacking group that claimed responsibility for the JBS attack, was also purportedly behind the attack on Kaseya. Our evil is based in Russia, as are most of the ransomware gangs attacking American companies. Earlier this month, President Biden told Vladimir Putin that the U.S. would treat new attacks as national security threats. Well, lo and behold, as of yesterday, all of our evil's sites were down. But it's not yet clear who is responsible for taking the group offline. John, was it Biden? Was it Putin? Or was it our evil themselves? Where's your money on this one? I think it's unlikely that it was our evil. I mean, you, we obviously don't know, right? But our evil strikes me as as a group that you know wants to uh, wants to be famous, if you will. They they like the spotlight, yeah. And so the notion that they're just going to suddenly you know shut down because they're tired or somebody told them to take a vacation or something yeah. doesn't seem right. Most likely seems to me that Putin said, "Knock it off." You know, the Americans are pissed, and uh -huh. so we don't need them to be pissed exactly at this moment. Uh, we'll tell you when you can get back to work. A weird consequence of this is that a lot of these companies that were hit won't be able to get the keys uh, to get back to their data. The data essentially will be lost forever. So that's a problem. Biden is expected to come out with some white paper on how the U.S. is going to respond to this. Yeah. I can't imagine that's going to tell us anything because it shouldn't, right? I mean, we're not going to say this is how we're going to respond. We're just going to respond. Mm -hmm. But uh, the U.S. ability to counterattack is ferocious, and the question is whether it will be deployed. So we'll find out. Well, do you think it's fair to ask if pursuing an escalation in that way, in, in the pursuit of deterrence and unconditional surrender, is wise given that on some level, U.S. cyber capabilities have not been equal to the task of preventing these sorts of attacks. I mean, why would we wish to escalate a scenario that we weren't in a position to prevent in the first place? Obviously, it's, you know, you don't want to get into a situation where you're making things worse. Yeah. But probably the thing that's going to make it the most worse, if you will, is not responding. Mm -hmm. So how you respond, I mean, you're not saying, you know, your nuclear weapon on Moscow or something. Right. But wherever you choose to respond... And it's your choice. You set the battlefield, right? You do so with overwhelming force, overwhelmingly applied, so that everybody understands that if the United States decides that you're a problem, you're going to get crushed, I think, in all of the calculations of what to do. That is at least a step in the right direction. 
Do you think that the reticence of the U.S. to apply overwhelming force overwhelmingly is a signal that the perpetrators behind these attacks are much bigger fish than perhaps we had anticipated? That maybe it is an entity working for, you know, Vladimir Putin and that if we are going to jump into that shark infested pool, <laughs> then the, yeah. you know, then the, uh, the outcome is going to be a, a much more severe escalation than we might have thought originally. I mean, my assume that the our evil is in fact working with the knowledge of Russia with, mm-hmm. you know, appropriate deniability or whatever they call it. Yeah, plausible deniability. Yeah. Plausible deniability. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> but, you know, obviously you don't want to get into a nuclear war with Vladimir Putin. Right. On the other hand, if the building that our evil is working out suddenly blows up or everybody in there suddenly comes down with COVID-19, then we have plausible deniability, Mm -hmm. just as they do. Well, let's move on. All right. For more than 10 years, a trained theoretical physicist named Peter Shepard has been trying to develop a, quote, ultimate index at Morgan Stanley Capital International. The goal is an index that tracks all markets, including commodities and even private assets, like real estate and private equity. Obviously, one of the many difficulties would be figuring out just the right mix of all these different markets. And some skeptics say the entire enterprise is misguided, and perhaps even just Morgan Stanley marketing spin. However, Shepard believes he's getting close. Robin Wigglesworth wrote about this in the FT. Rebecca, where do you stand? Is it possible to create an ultimate index? Well, I think it's a terrible idea, which is oh. which probably means it's the future of finance, for all I know. I think it's a terrible freaking idea. Why? Why? It's a, you know what? For one thing, it'll crash every emerging market on this planet. You know, Robin Wigglesworth described this as a platonic ideal, or maybe it was, maybe it was one of his sources described this as a platonic ideal of financial markets trading. Markets are political. They are psychological. They are religious. They are, at times, I would say, even sexual. I do not think that financial markets in a global sense conform neatly to this quantum theory model that can be used to just explain everything. I mean, the idea is to enable a shift to passive indexing for every asset class on the planet, thus sort of nullifying this idea of an alternative investment or a non-correlated asset class. Why would one invest in such an index? For democratization of financial markets. That's it's all in the name of democratization. And of course, it's difficult to get the right mix of geographies. I mean, why should you overweight one? I mean, let's ask Ray Dalio. Maybe he knows. Like, why should we overweight one part of the world and underweight another? And why should MSCI get to make that decision? What are the you know, what are the ramifications for countries when you know it becomes overweighted or underweighted. I mean, we already know that among sophisticated investors, I mean, when they dabble in emerging markets, those are tourist dollars. You know, the first sign of trouble, they are out of there. And that intensifies sell-offs in areas like emerging markets. If it's plausible, if it's feasible, even if it happens, I don't think it's wise. I think the ramifications for countries and the way that they manage their economies around the world, I think it's I think it's very dire. I don't know. I think people are People be taking aim at that thing. Like, I'm just like, somebody's going to get their face ripped off with the ultimate index. That's what I think. <laughs> when I read it, I thought of that Roger Lowenstein book, uh, When oh, Genius yeah. Failed. When Genius Failed, yeah. Right? And it, it did strike me as sort of uh-huh. wildly grandiose. 
and that that it was sort of the same hubris and same you know ego and so on and so yeah. forth as long term capital management yeah yeah as LTCM but mm-hmm. it it just strikes me as one of those things that will absolutely go off the rails yeah <laughs> and I I can't say where when but it just has disaster written all over it so what so what do you invest invest in I mean every subsector of the market is seeking returns above some benchmark. But if everything is in the everything benchmark, then that's that's just like the end of investing. It's just right. like, I don't right. know. <laughs> it's just like, I mean, it's basically what you have is a puddle of capital that <laughs> goes right. nowhere because yeah. it's it's just there, right? I mean. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. So obviously, the enormously smart geniuses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's got failure written all over it. So. <laughs> you heard it here first, guys. Yes, stay <laughs> the away. The ultimate index. That's it. <laughs> stay away. It's got failure written all over it. I don't think we've. Uh, I don't think we've come to that conclusion about anything future oriented on the podcast thus far. But uh, so this is a first. There you go. All right. So we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with more news items. Welcome back to News Items. Foreign investors are pouring money into China. Despite Beijing's rocky relationship with the West and their recent crackdown on overseas listings, offshore investors have increased their holdings of both Chinese stocks and treasuries by about 50% year over year. Interestingly enough, Kathy Wood's ARK Investment Management is selling Chinese tech stocks. The ARK Innovation ETF has reduced its exposure to Chinese stocks from 8% in February to just 1% today. Wood said that, quote, from a valuation point of view, these stocks have come down, and again, from a valuation point of view, probably will remain down. Rebecca, what do you make of this seemingly contradictory <laughs> information? Well, my first thought is that geopolitical tensions and saber-rattling between the U.S. and China and the audit requirements and the crackdown on DD, et cetera, creates this sought-after dip that investors want to buy. It's like there's so few dips to buy anymore. You got to take mm-hmm. them where you can find them. So that's what they're doing. It's just like, you know, a little blip on the screen because Beijing, you know, asked for a quarterly statement from some company. I mean, that's it, you know, buy the dip. I mean, the other thing is that we've seen a reflation trade taking hold in various markets because of COVID recovery. That's been the name of the game for the past several months now. And that's what's happening in China, that tech stocks have been high flyers throughout the pandemic. Now that the Chinese economy appears to be pulling out of the worst of COVID and has demonstrated that they're going to crack down if there's a flare-up somewhere, then the uh, valuation case for tech stocks becomes less attractive, and then people seek onshore industrial opportunities, so to speak. So growth to value. That is right. Additionally, the FT article pointed out that renminbi assets have been included in an increasing number of indices, including the FTSE Russell Index, which in March included Chinese bonds in its global bond index. So that has resulted in a lot of investor capital flooding into those assets. I think last Friday, China's central bank lowered the reserve requirement ratio for lenders last week. That, once again, was a risk-on indicator. So you got dollars pouring in from there. And there's still like 150 basis point spread between Chinese bond yields and U.S. treasuries. So from a valuation standpoint, that's attractive. Something that you hear in the investor community is that the tensions between Washington and Beijing, I mean, it's very real. The tension is very real. But it's noise to a certain extent. From the investor perspective, the story is something very different, which is that they see attractive opportunities that they can't afford to pass up. So that's what that's all about. 
And so Kathy Wood is just like, we're out of growth and uh, yeah. we'll wait for it to come back, essentially. Well, I think Kathy Wood's ETFs have been long on the bellwether tech stocks in China, like Tencent and like JD.com. And so that's mm-hmm. really where you're seeing the pullback. I think that the uh, the weighting of fintech stocks in her, uh, one of her other ETFs has remained steady during that right. period. So there right. are pockets of the of the Chinese economy that are maybe less attractive from a valuation standpoint than, yeah. than others. I do think she's right about fintech in China. I think that's yeah. ex- exactly right. Yeah, I don't know if mm-hmm. you're with Kathy Wood, but I'm with Kathy Wood. So. I don't know, you know. So far, I'm look. I'm 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 fully supportive of what Kathy's trying to do out there. <laughs> That's okay, what I'm fully say. supportive. You know what? There. Look, all this talk of market volatility, et cetera, reminds me of my of what my old boss at the NYSE used to say. Every time there was like a market sell off, he'd say, "Take them, take them." He was a permable. <laughs> permable. He was always buying the dip, and there that's look. Go. There are lessons to be learned from that. He's always buying the dip. No, I think not even he would be in favor of this everything index. He'd be, he'd say, no, 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 no. Okay, let's move on to the next news item. Great. Thanks to revised EU copyright laws, news publishers can now demand payment when platforms like Google use their copyrighted material in search results. On Tuesday, France's antitrust authority fined Google 500 million euros, or nearly 600 million U.S. dollars, for failing to negotiate, quote, in good faith with publishers for using their work. We've seen increased international pressure on Google and Facebook to share advertising revenue with news outlets, but this fine is the biggest one yet. Google now has two months to make an offer to French publishers or face fines of up to 900,000 euros per day. Meanwhile, here in the States, the Federal Trade Commission formally announced a probe into Amazon's $8.5 billion deal to buy MGM. The probe is not unexpected, but it is another piece of evidence that suggests the Biden administration and new FTC chair Lena Khan may have big tech in their sights. John, how worried should Amazon, Google, and other tech giants be, or should they be worried at all? Oh, I think they should be worried. I mean, you know, these are fantastically wealthy companies and these countries in Europe and Asia and indeed the United States are in desperate need of tax revenue. You know, fines would be another form of tax revenue. So they're vulnerable, particularly in the EU. The leadership there is aggressively going after big tech and doing everything it can to extract as much money as it possibly can from these companies. Mm -hmm. I think in the case of the Google, quote, fine, end quote, the charge that they didn't negotiate in good faith is obviously nonsense. They negotiated in good faith in Australia and reached a deal there. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that they were trying to get the best possible deal they could get, but they're not crazy. They're not, they obviously want to get to a deal Suddenly, they're looking at almost $600 million in fines. I think the only remedy there is that the United States government has to stand up for its company, a company based in the United States, and say to the EU, uh, no, you're not going to do that. Go back and, quote, negotiate in good faith yourself, basically. Really? Yeah. If I were Biden, that's what I would do. I mean, Mm -hmm. absolutely. On the state side... You know, the FTC is looking into Amazon's tender offer for MGM, and you think to yourself, okay, let's see, Netflix is a giant in the space, Mm -hmm. and Disney is a giant in the space, and Google with YouTube is a giant in the space, and then there's Hulu, and then there's HBO Max and Amazon putting itself in a position to compete in that arena 
is of interest to antitrust enforcement in what way exactly? I mean, it's a preposterous attack on a company that's just trying to compete in a very competitive space. There is absolutely no consumer harm at all, none. And so Lena Khan is a really smart woman. And she was at Yale, I think, before she had this job. Mm -hmm. She wrote a famous essay about why Amazon should be broken up. But Amazon buying MGM is not one reason why Amazon should be broken up. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm stunned by it. And it seems to me, you know, everybody's angry with big tech. That's the political wisdom in Washington. And we, the administration, have to address that. And, you know, Lena Khan will go out and begin the assault on big tech and break it up because, you know, they're the new enemy. They could have started in a much better place, it seems to me. So I do want to circle back to this story about France and Google because they're facing fines, as we mentioned in the, in the intro, of 900,000 euros per day if they fail within the next 60 days. I don't know if that's budgeting in the generous European vacation or not. <laughs> like right. 60 days, they've got <laughs> Take to, August uh, out. Take to, August yeah, I know. out. I guess that counts, right? To, uh, to come up with this new proposal to compensate news agencies. What do you think that plan is going to look like? I mean, look, I, for one, think journalists need to be compensated for their work and news agencies need to be compensated for the value they provide. And I mean, you think you're going to pull one over on the French? You know, journalists are valued in those markets. And so they're going to they're going to stand up because that's a that's a national value. I mean, there's a basic question, which is if Google takes your interview on Investable Universe and puts it up yeah. against advertisements for, mm-hmm. you know, a commodity broker or something, yeah. then they are supposedly stealing money from you. Yes, they are. Which is, you know, in my view, absolutely not true. What they're doing ah. is bringing you to the attention of a much wider audience and therefore enhancing your business. But let's say, just for the sake of argument, that... It's true that Google, by advertising against search results, is in some way harming journalistic companies in Europe. Let's say that's true. $600 million? It's preposterous. The framework agreement was 75 to 110. If they were serious, what they would say is, look, we have all these institutions, we have these you know, newspapers and websites that we think are important mm-hmm. to the functioning of the country and the functioning of the political system and so on and so forth. You have profited greatly by essentially being adjacent to this product. They need to be compensated. Mm-hmm. It should be a general fund, country by country. You know, if you pour into it every year... That makes sense. But, Mm. you know, just out of the blue, give us $600 million. I realize it's not exactly $600 million. I think the Biden administration has to come in and say, no, you can't do this. What the French regulators are saying to Google and its ilk are, you broke it, you fix it. And I thought, that's fair. But did they break it? I think they did. That's the part part I don't really get. What big tech did to news? I mean, you know, didn't do it to itself. (laughs) I mean... Well, I, I mean, I think there's general agreement that the likes of Google, Facebook, social media, et cetera, completely destroyed the traditional media business model. They disrupted it. They disrupted it. But the yeah. question is who, you know, who is responsible for that? I worked at the Boston Globe in the 1990s and you could see the Internet coming a mile away. OK. Mm-hmm. And it was absolutely going to crush the Boston Globe and the Boston Globe did nothing. Mm-hmm. Zero. They didn't do anything to change their behavior. 
and they got crushed. So you say to yourself, is that the fault of Google or is that the fault of Boston Globe? You know, there's no doubt that Google and Facebook and the others have stripped the content and that institutions like the Boston Globe or the New York Daily News or whatever have a case to be at least get some piece of that action. But, you know, the notion that they're helpless victims, they a large part of this is, you know, they did it to themselves. They didn't adjust to the new environment. They thought that— How, how, how could they have done that? How could they have done it? Subscriptions and then figuring out ways to offer premium products at a very high at a very high price. If you sold the Boston Globe sports section, I think you could fetch a hundred bucks a year for it, right? That's how devoted Red Sox Nation is and the new New England Patriots and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd have two million people who would spend a hundred dollars a year to get that product or $10 a month or whatever it is. So, you know, there were ways to do, I mean, the Wall Street Journal right away put up a paywall, right away. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it saved the paper. All right. So I think the takeaway here is paywalls. I think it's paywalls, 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 and more paywalls. John, we agree about almost everything today. Almost. (laughs) If you're interested in the global market of things, mm-hmm. uh, you should quickly visit Rebecca's website, which is called investableuniverse.com. Quick, the paywall's coming. <laughs> the paywall has to come soon, or Google is going to put Investable Universe out of business, <laughs> um, and, and they won't have mo- any money left over to pay the fines. So. <laughs> That's right. And if you liked the stories you heard today on the News Items podcast and you would like more expert analysis from John Ellis, go to the News Items newsletter. You'll find it at newsitems.substack.com and go for the you got you got to go for the subscription model. Again, John does not work cheap. Go for the subscription (laughs) model where you will get the best analysis in the media business every day. That's that's what I have to say about news items. Journalism in action. There you go. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Our recording engineer is Simran Singh, and we'd like to thank the whole team at Factory Underground. We'll be back tomorrow afternoon with my interview with retired General Russ Howard, founder of the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point and a longtime friend. We'll talk about Afghanistan, its neighbors, and what used to be called the global war on terror. We'll see you then.